Good to see you guys. I've been, I've been praying for you guys uh, this week. Uh, just thinking about the message and just, you know, some of you are heavy on my hearts as I'm, as, I'm, as I'm preaching this message today. I know you're going through some difficult times and I hope that this message will be an encouragement to you as you walk with Jesus uh, through difficult seasons. Um, if that's not you this morning, then just know that there are other people around you who are walking through a difficult season. And uh, certainly there are people that need hope that are all around you, that think that they're the, because of decisions that they have made, that their lives are not worth much. And uh, we have the gospel. We have hope. So I hope that this message will encourage those of you um, who need to share that message of hope uh, with people, especially during this Easter season. My name is Jeremy. For those of you who I have not met, uh, Brent just got, got back out of town from a spring break, so we gave him the week off. But I'm here filling in. And I'm super glad to be able to preach to you from Exodus 2, 11 through 25. So go ahead and find that passage in your Bibles. I love to hear the sound of Bible pages rustling. That's just a beautiful, beautiful sound. I think that's what heaven's going to sound like uh, in my mind. But <laughs> a little bit of it. Anyway, as I was thinking about this message, uh, I was thinking about World War II films, particularly World War II films starring Steve McQueen because I love Steve McQueen and pretty much anything that he does. Um, who's watched The Great Escape before? The Great Escape. Fantastic movie. The rest of you people need to watch, go home and watch that film. Do not watch it while you are on, uh, on your smartphones right now. Do not get out and watch the, uh, the motorcycle jump scene while I'm preaching. Okay, save that for when you go home. But Steve McQueen's character is, is really funny in the film. He is constantly trying to, uh, to engineer an escape out of, out of this World War II prison camp. They're in the middle of Germany, and there are British and American soldiers that are being held there, and they know that it is their duty to try to escape uh, and to re-enter combat. And so uh, I don't want to spoil too much of the film for you, but uh, they, do not, they do not escape on their first try. Uh, they fail more than one time. And as a matter of fact, Steve McQueen's character is constantly getting caught and tossed into the cooler, uh, this, this detention area, and he's, he brings his baseball in there, and he uh, throws his baseball at the wall over and over again as he's trying to hatch his next plan, trying to break out of the prison camp. And so that, that, uh, that film is full of attempts trying to escape under their own power. No one from the outside is coming in to help them and to save them. In our passage today, we're going to see one man try and fail to save himself and others. But we're going to see in the providence of God that God is faithful to his promises. What he says he will do, he will do. And so I want to, I want to start with this thesis statement. I hope you take this home with you. Our efforts to save ourselves fail, but God remembers his promises. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it, it, uh, it works like a hammer. Lord, shattering our conceptions about what this life is all about. Lord, it opens us up to your plans and your purposes. We thank you for Jesus, for the ways in which we see him on every page of the Old Testament. Help us, Lord, to see him clearly this morning as our deliverer. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would deliver people out of their difficult cir circumstances this morning. Equip us with hope for the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so my, my first uh, point is this. God permits failure to produce humility. God permits failure to produce humility. Look with me at verses 11 through 15. We'll read a chunk here and then go over them verse by verse. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So there's a couple things I want us to see by way of background in this first verse, verse 11, that are really important. Number one is that time has passed 
Um, since uh, the beginning of chapter 2, we heard about how Moses was saved, how he was drawn out of the water, and how he, was, uh, he, he had become a part of Pharaoh's household. He was being raised uh, by Pharaoh's daughter, but that he was being nursed by his own biological mother. And so Moses, uh, we get more information about his upbringing from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Let's look at that briefly. Verses 22 through 23 says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So Moses is now 40 years old, and we can see um, in Moses' life three basic periods of his life that are all around 40 years uh, each. So he lives around 120 years. The first... uh, The first chunk of his life is Moses growing up, and that happens, of course, very quickly in these couple of verses uh, where we see Moses jump from from being a a younger child to being 40. The second chunk of time that we're going to cover uh, today, talking about Moses' life in exile, that's that uh, second 40 years. And then the last uh, 40 years is Moses leading the people of Israel. I hope I didn't spoil that for anyone. Most of you probably have heard the, the, uh, the story of Moses in the book of Exodus before, uh, but he does end up leading the people of Israel. We're going to talk some about that today as well. So Moses is educated by the Egyptians. He is given the best education that money can buy in that, during that period of time. And he has skills and abilities as a result of that. And those skills and abilities are his by God's providence. In God's silent way, he has equipped Moses with this understanding of of, uh, some some basic tools to use in the world around him. And we often think of our skills and abilities uh, as things that we acquire, that we have done in our own strength. But when you really think about it, who gives us the wisdom to make the decisions to pursue those skills and abilities? It's God. Who gives us the strength to, to sustain our path so that we're able to grow into those skills and abilities, to keep going um, when times get difficult? It's God. Who puts us in the right place for those opportunities to begin with? It's God. So we always want to look at everything that we have as not something that we've kind of pulled up our bootstraps into, but things that have been provided to us by God. So why do we have the skill and ability that we do? God's providence. And of course, as the parable of the talents instructs us in the New Testament, God expects a return. He expects us to use those skills and abilities for him and for his purposes. So the first thing I wanted to call out is that Moses has grown up. The second thing I want us to see uh, in verse 11 is that Moses went out. And the author of Hebrews has some good insights into Moses' life during the great faith chapter of chapter 11. Verses 24 through 26, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So this passage tells us that at some point, Moses begins to identify with the people of Israel instead of the people of Egypt. He decides he wants to be known as one of the Hebrew people. We see this theme, this thread, uh, really throughout Scripture of identifying with God's people. Uh, We saw it when we were studying the book of Esther in uh, Esther uh, chapters 4 and 5 when Mordecai was challenging Esther to stand up and to be counted as one of God's people. We also see it in the New Testament when Jesus identifies himself uh, with Israel, not only by becoming a human, but also by being born into the nation of Israel. We see him also being baptized on behalf of Israel, identifying with his people and saying, I am the one who is going to uh, produce new life in you, Uh, but you're the people that I've come to save, the people of Israel. So the author of Hebrews here is saying, don't pick safety and wealth uh, over eternal things. Jesus is greater Than these things. So follow Moses in his example as far as that goes. But back to our text here in uh, verse 11, it says that he went out to his people. He went out to his people. So he's he's figuratively speaking, Moses himself is coming out of Egypt. 
This verb went out is the, is the Hebrew verb, verb uh, yetse, and it is used throughout the uh, book of Exodus when it's describing the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and leaving their bondage. And so figuratively speaking, Moses is being brought out of Egypt and, and the, uh, the ways in which he was raised and, uh, and, and wants to be seen as part of the people of Israel. So you see that, that, uh, that phrase, his people, being repeated twice in that verse. The, the author Moses is trying to, to emphasize that these are his people. That's the way he's seeing them now that, uh, that he has grown up. The third thing I want to bring out from uh, verse 11 is that Moses saw, looked, he says that he looked on their burdens and then he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. So Moses lives a pretty comfortable life as lives go. In, in the palace, he's enjoying all of the comforts of living as Egyptian royalty. And uh, when I was thinking about this part of the passage, it ran, reminded me of The Office and a particular episode in which the characters were discussing safety protocols uh, in The Office. And you've got uh, the, the kind of two uh, heads of, of Dunder Mifflin there in, uh, in, in that location in Scranton. You've got Michael Scott, who's, who's an office manager. And then you've got uh, Daryl Philbin, who's the warehouse ma manager. And they're talking about, they're comparing notes and talking about safety protocols and which one of them uh, is more likely to be injured. And so Daryl likens Michael's life. He says, look, you live, you live a, a, a soft, nerfy life. He compares uh, Michael's life to a Nerf ball, right? No one is going to be seriously injured when throwing around a Nerf ball. And he gives this great, uh, great phrase. He says, uh, you're sitting on your biscuit, never having to risk it, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's Michael's life, right? He, is, he enjoys a life of ease and comfort in a lot of ways. Well, likewise, sometimes we don't see, really see things until we get things, get ourselves out of our comfort zone. Comforts can blind us to the very real suffering of others around us. Moses begins to see life in a different light as he walks around and is among his people. And he sees that his people are under the cruel oppression of the people of Egypt. He sees them with eyes of compassion. I want you to remember that idea that Moses sees with eyes of compassion because we're going to talk in a few minutes about how God does the very same thing. So in verse 12, um, Moses decides that he's going to do something about uh, this Egyptian who is beating the Hebrew, one of his people. It says, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses looks around, he sees that nobody's there, and he acts. He kills the Egyptian in secret and hides the body. Now, I don't know what, like, what, what Moses is thinking, like what's his game plan in terms of hiding this Egyptian in the sand, because anybody who's seen one episode of Bones knows that that, that body's going to turn up sooner or later. And sand tends to move around a lot, you know, so I, I don't know why he thought this was a wise idea uh, to, to do this, but... Uh, but Moses acts impulsively. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, based on our, our grid of uh, Ecclesiastes 3 we've been looking at, there are times uh, to act. There are times to do things. Um, and there are other times when you're not supposed to do things. So is this, according to Ecclesiastes 3, a time to kill? Is Moses right in doing what he does in this passage? Well, first of all, we need to look at the situation. Moses is looking at an unrighteous act. The Hebrew slave is being violently beaten here. And the reason we know he, this is not just a little tap and send him on his way is because this is the same verb that's used throughout this passage when it's talking about striking someone. Moses strikes the Egyptian hard enough to kill him. And so the, the, uh, the Hebrew slave is being beaten with serious and violent force. Well, a good defense attorney might be able to get Moses off the hook seeing the circumstance that's going on. But we have to ask, is this a righteous act? Is this something that Moses said that is actually the right thing to do? But we have to realize that Moses has other options available to him that he deselects, that he doesn't take. Number one is that he could use his position to stop what's going on. He could say, stop what's happening. I am, I am part of the royal family, and you need, to, you need to take a minute. You need to walk around, right? Go, go take a walk somewhere, uh, Egyptian slave master. Right? He could do that. 
he could also physically put himself in between the two men and stop the conflict that way. But Moses, um, instead, he, he, we see that he has an intent to kill. You notice that he looks this way and that. He's weighing ever so briefly in his mind, can I get away with what I'm about to do? So this is a premeditated act. This is not just something that happens uh, in the moment and he hits the guy a little harder than he meant to. Moses means to kill this man. So we can see in Moses' anger, uh, he's angry at a destructive, sinful act. But instead of responding righteously and choosing a different option, he commits one himself. Look at James 1, 19 through 20 with me. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Such a great passage because it, it highlights for us the fact that our anger bubbles up very quickly. But anger is there within us because it is trying to accomplish a particular purpose. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, number one, is that purpose God's purpose? Is it something that God wants done? And secondly, am I going to do that thing in the way that God would have me do it? In this situation, Moses, is, Moses sees something that God does, in fact, want to accomplish, but he is trying to accomplish it in his own strength for his own agenda. He is acting in the flesh, and he's pursuing vengeance. So he takes things much farther than he needed to. And unfortunately, there are consequences for sin. As we sow to the flesh, we reap the flesh. Let's look at um, Galatians 6, 7 through 8. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so there are going to be some very real consequences as Moses sows to the flesh, as he does what his flesh wants to do, there are going to be some consequences in Moses' life. Look at verse 13. It says, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? There's that Hebrew verb again, striking your companion. So Moses realizes that there has been, is wrong that's being done. He sees that this is a rough fight, and he steps in to make peace once again. So verse 14 says, he answered, the, the man who's the offender, answers, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So Moses' sin of killing the Egyptian is being called out by the offender in this fight. And it's interesting here, this is a great example of what we call deflection, right? Whenever, uh, whenever I, I go in and I'm, I'm having to break up a, a fight between two of my kids, they're inevitably saying, hey, it was, he did it, right? He's the one who started this thing, right? I was just following through. And, and that is deflection. It's trying to, to shift the blame from us onto someone else. So even though this man is, is laying into his neighbor and is, and is beating, him, uh, beating him up, he's, he's, uh, he's trying to shift the blame onto Moses. He's saying, hey, Moses, you have no, you, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your sin instead of looking at mine. Great example of deflection. But he's saying that Moses is a hypocrite. How dare you say this to us and try to break up our fight when you take matters into your own hands and actually kill people? So because of his sin, Moses has lost all of his credibility as a leader of God's people. They are no longer listening to him. Word is out about what kind of person, what kind of vengeful man Moses is. Now, to be sure, when he asks this question, who made you a prince and judge over us, Moses' leadership is going to be called into question numerous times during the book of Exodus, usually by people who are in the midst of sinning. But in this situation, the question is well-founded. Who has made Moses a judge and a prince over them? No one. God has not appointed Moses as their leader yet. Moses is taking things into his own hands. So, verse 15, Pharaoh's going to respond. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. 
And so as we've seen in the, in the past uh, few weeks here as we've been walking through Exodus, people have been trying to kill Moses throughout this book so far. And thankfully, uh, Moses, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh does not succeed, otherwise it would be a very short book. Uh, we've got a long way to go, and, and a lot of the God has to say to us, so thankful that the story doesn't end here with Moses' death at the hands of Pharaoh. Um, but Moses escaped to Midian, which is on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. And I prepared this morning with a map, if we can get that up there. All right. So on the left side, you see where Egypt is. You see the Nile River over there. You see the Sinai Peninsula in the middle. And then you see Midian on the other side, where that little gulf is uh, on the right side of the bottom. So Moses has to, to go all clear across the Sinai Peninsula in order to get away from those who are uh, accusing him and, and would cause his death. So to recap, Moses has been delivered from uh, death several times already so far. And he has been protected by and educated by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if you're reading the story, there's this huge buildup that's taking place. It really looks like Moses is the guy who's going to save his people. And then this happens. Huge disappointment. In one impulsive decision, Moses seems to have blown everything that God is doing to set him up to be the savior of his people. And I want us to see this. God permits our failure. He allows us to fail. And at least one of the reasons that he allows us to fail is to lead us to himself. Because until you come to a point at which you're humble enough to ask for God's help, there is no repentance and thus there is no salvation. Let's look at Galatians 3, 23 through 24 as a good example of this. Paul argues this. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So he's saying, look at your life. There was a point at which Jesus came to save you from your sin, that, that faith was revealed in you, that you placed your trust in him instead of placing your trust in your own strength. But before that, something happens. He says, before faith, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So God upholds his standard perfectly and righteously in our life. He doesn't allow sin to be called anything other than what it is. He doesn't sweep it under the rug and ignore it. He calls us out for what we are. And we are caught by God's law, by his righteous standard, every way we turn. The Bible for us, then, is not pleasure reading. It's not a breezy summer beach read, right? It, is, it calls us unbelieving, adulterous, murderous, selfish lawbreakers. But the good news of God's word is that, number one, God cares enough to tell us the truth about our condition. Think about it. If you had a serious medical condition and you were sitting down with your doctor and you didn't know what was going on, there were, there were symptoms that you were having that, that couldn't be handled by taking a Tylenol. You go in and you're talking to the doctor. You want for your doctor to tell you the news all of the news, to lay it all, all on the table so that you know what you're dealing with, so that you, you understand your condition. God is that kind of person who will lay out for you your sinful condition and show you who you are. But the, good, the other bit of good news is that God also cares enough to show us that there's a remedy for our sin. You see, Moses has tried to save the people under his own strength, and it's backfired. He has ended up uh, with disrespect from the Israelites that he's trying to save, and he's got a warrant out for his arrest, right? Pharaoh wants to kill him. God permits failure in order to humble us and to bring us to a point at which we are no longer able to trust in ourselves, and that prepares us to trust in him. Which brings up my second point. God tests us in order to prepare us. God tests us in order to prepare us. Let's look at this next passage at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had several, seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Rahel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? 
They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses finds himself in Midian. If I could have that slide up again with the map real quickly. So Midian, uh, the, the Midianites are a people that have descended from Abraham and uh, his, his other wife, Keturah, who was mentioned very briefly in Genesis 25, verse 4. That would be after Sarah's death. And uh, we see them um, as a group of people. We see them um, kind of come up throughout the, the biblical record. But in Genesis 37, we know it was the Midianites who actually sold Joseph into the hands of the Ishmaelites who then take him over um, to Egypt. So if you remember the Joseph story, they're a part of that story. They're around, uh, really all around um, from the land of Canaan on through the Sinai Peninsula in different places. So it's probable that Moses is on, uh, if you look at, there are two gulfs there in, in that picture. If you look at the one on the right, he's probably on the west side of that gulf on the Sinai Peninsula somewhere because um, we're going to see in chapter 3 that he is shepherding the sheep near the Mount Horeb, which is likely on the Sinai Peninsula. So there's a group of Midianites who live over in that area. All right, so what does Moses do in Midian? And verse, verses 16 and 17 said, The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. So you've got these seven ladies who are responsible for their dad's um, sheepfold, and they're going to the well, and there are some troughs that are out there that are probably hewn out of the rock. And so they are doing the hard work of, of bringing all of the water that would be necessary to feed this, or excuse me, to, to, uh, make, to water this, uh, this, this group of sheep. And they are, uh, they're busy filling those troughs. Probably takes a good bit of work to do. And so this group of guys comes along. Uh, this group of shepherds says, no, we have the rights to this well. And they start to, to move these ladies out of the way and take all of their hard work and water their sheep instead. And Moses is sitting by the, there by the well. He's a bystander. And he takes action. He does something about what's going on. Now, if you've, been, if you've been paying attention so far, Moses is over two stepping into these kinds of situations, right? He's not done so well. Every time he steps into a situation to try to help somebody that's oppressed, things go south. But in this situation, Moses actually does help. He's actually able to be helpful to them. He is helpful and he's courageous, right? He could lose life and limb standing up to this group of shepherds. Uh, I don't know, apparently his military training is, is kind of kicking in here, and he is uh, telling these shepherds to, to move on their way. He has no real reason to step up and help um, this, this, um, this priest's daughters. He doesn't owe them anything, um, but he's acting on principle. He sees that someone is being taken advantage of, that they are physically weaker, and he, is, and he decides he's going to even the score. So he's looking out for those who are oppressed. This is something that we continue to see in Moses' life. God has placed this in him. And so Moses saves them. So let's see what happens when the ladies return home. It says, when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So Jethro's come home after a hard day doing whatever priests do in the land of Midian. And um, he notices that his daughters come in early from their rounds with sheep. Now, perhaps this was something that happened often, um, where they were taken advantage of by shepherds and moved out of the way, and, and they had to wait their turn and, 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 and uh, water the sheep, bring up water for the sheep again. But uh, he, they, they begin talking about this Egyptian who came and not only saved them, but also has watered their flock, which, again, it takes a good deal of work. And so they know that he's Egyptian because probably of the way that he uh, is dressed and, and the way that he has cut his hair and maybe he's got some Egyptian eyeliner on. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, they're able to identify him as, as an Egyptian, someone who comes um, from that part of the world. So love the Bible and its situational comedy. Uh, here in verse 12, I found this really funny, right? Um, he's, he's asking this question of the girls. He, he says... Um, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. 
He's like, dude, you've got this helpful, courageous stranger who's willing to do a lot of work for you. Why have you left him out in the wilderness? Like, you need to bring him home. We need to take care of this guy. Like, no wonder I have seven unmarried daughters, right? They don't, they don't, have, they don't have things together. So I need to give you some instruction, ladies. Bring this guy home. Let's see what might happen, right? Maybe, maybe I have six unmarried daughters at the end of this meal. So... Um, so Reuel, whose, whose other name is Jethro, we'll get into that as, as, the, as uh, we continue to study um, the book of Exodus, but he's also called Jethro. It says that Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and, she, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Jethro invites him to stay, and he does end up getting matched up with Zipporah, uh, which is good for him. So a little silver lining to this very dark cloud in his life. And Moses names his son Gershom. Now, one thing you'll notice as you read the Bible is that, is that often the Hebrew people name a person after a circumstance that is going on in their lives. So if you're, if you're Bible students, you may remember 1 Samuel chapter 6 when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines and it's taken away. And there's this woman who gives birth and she calls her son Ichabod. And that name means the glory has departed. Now, how would you like to be named Ichabod, right? You walk into a room and it just feels like everybody says, hey, Ichabod. And they're suddenly reminded, oh, the glory of the Lord has departed. Like, like just sucks the air right out of the room. You'd have to really be the life of the party in order to overcome a name like Ichabod. But Gershom is named after, this. his name is a composite of two Hebrew words. One is Gur for alien, and the second is Shum, meaning there. And so Gershom means an alien there. So, so Moses' son's name is almost like a blues song, talking about how he is a stranger in a strange land. So he's being reminded of this even as he's naming his son. So to recap Moses' situation, because we've got another 40-year jump that's about to happen in the timeline. The next time we see Moses is going to be in Exodus chapter 3, the beginning, uh, and the, the, his encounter with the burning bush. So we're going to condense about 40 years of time in, into that little, those few verses, that gap of, of verses. So let's recap his situation. Number one, he's separated from his home country, where he grew up. Moses used to have a place. You know what it's like to live in a place, and you just know what things are like. You know what the weather's like. You know what the roads are like. You know how to get from point A to point B. It's just comfortable. It's nice to live in a place for a long time. So Moses no longer has a place. Second is Moses is alienated from his people. Remember that Moses was beginning to invest his life in the people of Israel. He was beginning to see himself as an Israelite. And now he's lost his people. He wanted to save them, and now he is far, far away from them because of his circumstance. Thirdly, Mo Moses is doing obscure work in an obscure place. Anybody feel like that someday? Some, some of you probably feel that way uh, from time to time when you go to work. Moses had a great job, right? He was working for the Pharaoh. He's probably uh, involved in the mil military and administration within the country of Egypt, so he had a great position where people called him sir. He had good work to do. And now, what does he find himself doing? Moses is put to work herding and leading sheep. So, think about his job, right? You've got stupid sheep that wander off all of the time. Moses has to chase after them and bring them back. They get distracted. They're like, oh, there looks like some good food over here. And it's actually, you know, a group of weeds that will kill them, right? Moses has to pull them away from the poisonous weeds all the time. They get easily distracted. These sheep do not do what is best for them. And Moses is constantly having to train them and to get them back on track. Gee, I wonder how God might use these, this skill set in, in his life. Because he's sitting here going, what a stupid job hanging out with stupid sheep all the time. But of course, it's the exact job that God is training him for as he's going to be leading the people of Israel throughout the wilderness. So Moses is out there in the wilderness leading sheep, and he, it probably crosses his mind a time or two 
um, that he is regretful over his impulsive action, right? Thinking about in, in an instant, in a one stupid decision, I lost all of the good things that were given to me. And it's ironic when you think about it because it's his impulsive anger that gets him in trouble later on in his life. You may remember, especially those of you who just studied the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20, what does Moses do that gets him in trouble with God? He strikes the rock, right? Once again, striking something that he's not supposed to strike. He's not supposed to be doing that. He's impulsive. He takes matters into his own hands. So uh, that, that, that impulsive anger has gotten him into trouble. And from time to time, perhaps he's walking around praying, just going, why am I here? What am I still doing here in this life? It seemed like everything was pointing towards me doing something in the land of Egypt. Why am I here? Well, we know that he is in the desert out there herding sheep for 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. Now, I'm not one who's terribly into uh, biblical numerology. I'm looking at how um, numbers um, affect things. I think we can go a little too far in our study of that sometimes. But 40 is a number that pops up a reasonable amount of times. Think about Noah's flood. Right, 40 days and 40 nights, the flood comes upon the world. You think about the, the 40 days um, that, that that took place. Think about the 40 years that the people of Israel are going to spend in the Egypt. Excuse me, they're going to end up in the wilderness following Moses around. One year for each day that the spies were sent out into the land of Canaan. And then you think about Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And there seems to be something about this number 40 that has to do with testing and preparation. Moses feels like he's been put on the bench, but God has a different angle on things. God has put him on the anvil to work him, to refine him for his glorious purposes. Look at Isaiah 48, 10 through 11 with me. It says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is a common thread throughout the history of Israel that's prophesied about later on in in Isaiah. But how true is it for Moses, right? Moses is being refined in the furnace of affliction. He's out there in the wilderness with these sheep. You see, God knows that the best thing for us sometimes is something that is painful, that refines us and causes us to focus on him and to cling to him. Moses' limited perspective prevents him from seeing what we can see as we read the book and what God has always seen, and that is that God has a good and redemptive plan for Moses. So I want you to think about yourself for a moment and the place that you are in right now. Perhaps some of you feel like you are in a wilderness place in your life where you're in between two things. Uh, Our ladies just read the the book of Numbers in their dwell groups, and that was the the theme, right, of your your retreat in the wilderness, that that whole idea. You were challenged to think about that. And I want you to see this passage and see that God does not waste time. If we belong to him, then we have to trust that he is at work in us and conforming us to the image of Christ. Why? Because he promised that he would do just that. Look at Philippians 1.6. It says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking to the Philippians about their salvation, and he's reminding them that there was a point in their life in which they came to know Christ, and, and, and Christ justified them. He made them right before God. Their sin was taken away. And then he who began a good work in you after their justification sanctifies us, brings it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the day in which we will see him uh, perfectly in glory, and that work will be done. So God promises us that he will sanctify us, that he will make us more like Jesus in this life. So speaking of promises, that brings me to my third point, which is this. God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. Look at verse 23. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
The cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, a couple of things happen here in verse 23. Number one is the king of Egypt dies. So, flashback to Egypt very quickly we see that the king of Egypt who wanted Moses' life is dead. And so Moses doesn't have to be in exile any longer. That warrant expires with Pharaoh's death. We also see back in Egypt that the people of Israel are groaning for help and that their cry comes before the Lord. Now this is the Bible's poetic way of talking. It's not as if the only time that that God ever hears them is in this moment because God is aware of everything that has been happening. God is not being capricious and not taking their call, right? Like the, 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 the prayer phone rings and, and he sees that it's the people of Israel and he just clicks and silences it, right? But God's, God is wise and his timing is good. So that's what this, this, uh, this way of addressing things is about. God hearing their cry is God's timing. He's, he knows that it's time to do something about the people of Israel. Now, For us, God's timing is not always good. Think back uh, a few weeks back when we're in the I Am series talking about Mary and Martha, John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. What did Mary and Martha say to Jesus as soon as they saw him? They said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, Jesus, your timing is terrible. Like a couple days before, and maybe you, the Son of God, could have done something about our situation. But now... I guess all hope is gone. Well, God had a purpose and a plan in the midst of that circumstance. God's, God is wise and his timing is good. Let's look at verses 24 through 25. The scene is going to change again. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we move from a glimpse of what is happening on earth to a rare moment in which we can see what's happening in heaven. We see that God hears the cries of his people. He is not far off. Unlike uh, the situation that happened in Judges, we studied that book uh, a little while ago, but we saw in Judges that the suffering of the people of Israel was caused by their own sin, and God allowed circumstances to transpire in which they were taken captive. But in this situation... As far as we understand it, the people of Israel are in bondage, not because of their sin, but because of the sin of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And so we see these four amazing verbs in these two verses here. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. So just as Moses saw in the beginning of our passage, and Moses looked on the people of Israel with compassion, God sees the people of Israel. He looks on them with that same kind of compassion, and he's going to determine to act. God remembers. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, not that he forgot, but that that he's bringing it back up as as a live issue that he needs to do something about right now. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would make them into a great nation, and that he would bring them into a land of promise. God knew. Scripture tells us that God is very aware of everything that is happening in the world around us. He he says that he knows even the hair, um, every hair that is on the top of our heads, and for some of us that's less than than it used to be, Um, but God is aware of us. He knows Um, who we are and what is going on in our lives. So you've probably seen a movie in which someone was being hurt. Maybe they're inside of a building and they're being abused or attacked by someone. And there's someone who's outside of that situation, maybe on the other side of a door or outside of the building, and they hear what's going on. And you can see in their face that they're not ignoring it that they're determined to act in some way, either to pick up the phone and to call someone to help or to intervene themselves and to get in the middle of that situation. God is, has a determination to act in that same situation, um, like in that situation. So what will God do? God is going to send a deliverer. God is going to send an unusual deliverer who has failed, who has blood on his hands. He's not a perfect man. 
He's been exiled for 40 years. And God has been testing him for 40 years in the wilderness. You see, God's power is displayed in us through our imperfections, through the imperfections of his servants. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.7. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So God doesn't send us out into the world as pictures of amazing grace and strength in and of ourselves. He sends us out in the world as an advertisement of his mercy because he calls people who are failures at keeping God's perfect standards of righteousness to himself. And the world can see his mercy at work in us because even though we rebelled against him, Jesus shed his own blood for us and gives us work to do in calling other people to know him. So it's good news for us that we have this treasure in jars of clay. So I want to say this as as we conclude. Number one, if you are a person who does not know Jesus, I need you to see something in this passage. You have a master who is more cruel than Pharaoh is over the people of Israel. Israel. And that master is sin. Now you may look at your life and say, you know what? I don't think I have any problems. I don't have anything that is ruling over me right now. Well, the Bible tells you the opposite. The Bible says that you, that sin has permeated every aspect of who you are, making you turn to your own way instead of submitting to God. You are not able to submit to God. You are going to be ruled by your sin. It's going to cause you to turn away from God every time that you're called towards him. But there is good news. God has sent a better deliverer than Moses to you. One who has clean hands instead of bloody hands like Moses. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, is not only one who hears about our sufferings, he is actually one who entered into our sufferings. Hebrews 2.18 says that he suffered when he was tempted so that he is able to help those who are being tempted. God is a God who keeps his promises. He says this in Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise from God's mouth to your ears. If you will place your trust in Jesus, if you will believe that he is your deliverer, then he will save you. So let's look for a moment at um, Palm, the Palm Sunday passage in Matthew 21. Because Jesus is being hailed as a deliverer in that passage. Think about it. His earthly ministry is at an all-time high. He has been uh, casting out demons. He's been causing blind eyes to see. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to the people of Galilee. And as these pilgrims walk in into Jerusalem along with Jesus, they've seen everything that he's done. And they are super excited. So they're cutting down palm branches and laying out their cloaks in front of Jesus. They are hailing him as their victorious king. Let's look at uh, the verses here at 8 through 11. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So the people are saying, This is the son of David. This is the one who was promised to us, the one who would be a king, who would sit on David's throne forever. God is keeping his promises. And they also say, when when asked who this is, they say, This is the prophet Jesus. They don't just mean a prophet They mean the prophet, the prophet who is prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18.18, who would be a person who would come and speak to them and tell them what, what God wanted from them, as Moses did. He's going to speak God's words to us, and we see that God is keeping his promises. Well, they were right to cry Hosanna because that word means save, and he is and was their savior. But Jesus would save them in some ways they didn't expect, They didn't see Jesus as the one who was going to come and save them from a greater uh, issue than them being under the Roman boot. He would become their suffering Messiah who would die in their place on a Roman cross as the substitute for the sins of not only them, 
but for all who would believe. And we, we're going to celebrate this coming Sunday, how Jesus accomplished a greater deliverance than Moses, and how Jesus accomplished a greater victory than David did. You see, we need Jesus as our deliverer because we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves because we have colluded with sin and Satan. We have participated in what, um, in what sin and Satan wanted us to do, and we have become slaves to sin. As a matter of fact, we're so indoctrinated in sin that the Bible calls us blind. It's part of why, as I, as I just told you a second ago, that you were under the mastery of sin, that you didn't believe me. is because you are actually blind to it. Without God's help, you can't see your own sin. You can't see sin for what it is. Apart from God's help, we are like a fish looking at a, at a hook full of bait. When a, fish, when a fish looks at, uh, at that bait, it sees a meal. It doesn't see the hook that is about to snare it and take its life. We're like that fish. We don't even see the hook. We look at sin and we see a meal. We see what we want, and we're willing to give ourselves in order to get it. Jesus came not only to give us sight, to help us to see what sin is for what it is, but also to take the payment for our collusion with sin and with Satan, to restore us to God, to give us useful things to do in his kingdom. You see, the beautiful thing about looking at the life of Moses this morning as a failed deliverer is that we see that there's no one that God can't reach. There's no one that God can't use. And I want you to think about this, especially if you've got a family member or a coworker who you just see, man, this, this guy just looks like they are completely out of reach. Look at who God uses in Moses. He's used as a man who has blood all over his hands, who has ruined everything that God has given to him. And yet God graciously is going to call Moses to himself and give him useful work to do. God's deliverance is bigger than any sin that anyone has ever committed. And when he steps in to save, there is nothing that can thwart his purposes. That is going to be the overarching theme over our next couple of weeks. There is nothing that can thwart the purposes of God. So I want to encourage you today to place your trust in Jesus, whether you already know him or whether you don't know him and you're coming to see this, this deliverer for the first time. He is your deliverer. Trust in him today because he is faithful to keep his promises. We pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for the strength of your word, which pulls the blinders off of our eyes, which shows us, Lord, that we are people who are in need of a deliverer. Lord, we are people who are in need of you as we walk through wilderness situations in our lives. Lord, we need for you to come alongside of us and reveal yourself. Show us, Lord, uh, through your word again, that you are God who remembers, that you are God who sees, who hears, and who acts. We are grateful, Lord, that you have acted on our behalf in Jesus. Help us to place our trust in our great deliverer today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.